Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and here I am sneaking one last little episode in before the year ends. At this stage, after so many conversations, what's left to do but run through my own top 10 list of the very best horror books I've read this year? And what a year for horror it's been. On this show alone, we've covered the gamut from media zombies and counterculture vampires to cursed carnivorous trees, haunted spaceships and frightening frozen landscapes. It's been a bloody feast and and what follows, of course, is only my personal favourites from the books released over the last 12 months. Opinions differ, as they should, and I could have easily doubled this list in an attempt to include more and please more listeners who want to see their favourite book listed. But that would be me talking for over an hour, which no one needs, let alone me. I'm quite unwell, you see. (laughs) You may have already picked that up from my Budweiser frog voice. New listeners, please don't think I'm this croaky every week. And what follows may well sound like the Reba McIntyre books hour. (laughs) Um, I will try to edit out the spluttering and coughing wherever possible. I even thought about maybe not recording this particular plague cast, but there were just so many great books this year, I wanted to mark them. And to say thanks to you, the best listeners a podcaster could ask for. Thanks for both listening and supporting the show. And I'll do a bit more OTT Thanksgiving, but we'll save that for the afterward if I last that long. (laughs) Um, Remember, there is the Patreon channel if you want more Talking Scared content. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and get loads of cool exclusive episodes. But for now, before this brutal, beautiful year tips over into something new... Let's gather around the fire one last time together, you and I, and let's talk scared. At number 10 on my list of favourite horror books written in 2022, we have Mary, An Awakening of Terror by Nat Cassidy. (laughs) Now, we talked about this book at some length, on the State of the Horror Nation podcast last week. But I think it was it was either Emily or Janelle's pick, not mine. So I'm, I'm glad to kind of give my word on this and say why it's ranking in my favourite books of the year. Um, basically, it's just fun horror done well. It's been described in its publishing blurb as a book that blends Midsommar with... American Psycho and A Pinch of I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Now that sounds great, but it's basically bullshit and it misses both the point and tone of this book. In reality, Mary is much more akin to Stephen King's Carrie. It seems to me like an overt and admitted tribute, even in the the rhyming name, Mary Carrie, you know, because both books are about a woman going through a physical and psychological threshold in her life. Whereas Carrie was, you know, leaving puberty, entering womanhood. These are all really cringy phrases, sorry. Um, But whilst it's about that, Mary is about the other end of the journey, about menopause and the way in which middle-aged women seem to lose value or, or depreciate 
as prizes in our patriarchal world. Again, that all sounds very serious. It's not, though. This book is a joy to read. Essentially, Mary is this quiet, middle-aged woman who leaves a kind of slightly chaotic life in the city, moves back to her desolate desert hometown, and then discovers things about herself that are, are truly horrible. She has these visions of extreme violence. She sees these ghosts. She discovers a cult. She mixes with an oddball cast of characters. It's a kind of grimly grotesque, funny backdrop. It's just wonderful. And that balance of, of horror and humour is very hard to get right. But, but Nat Cassidy nails it, particularly in the later stages when Mary kind of throws off these shackles of depression and, and goes through her a late stage becoming. And there's nothing more satisfying than the wrath of a woman who is done with your bullshit. <laughs> it has these fantastic, sticky, tactile ghosts, including the best bathroom spectre since Kubrick's The Shining. Um, yeah, all that's wonderful. Nat more than shows his ability and his moral right to tell this story because it's cruel yet compassionate. It never punches down. It's funny and frightening in a mix that is hard to strike. It's respectful to the experience whilst finding the humour and the horror in the experience of menopause. But overall, it's just a return to the big, bombastic, fun, in capital letters, horror of the 80s and 90s. I just ripped through it, even though it's nearly 600 pages. Nat's next book is going to be called Nestling, I believe. And again, from the blurb, it promises to spin Salem's Lot into a contemporary novel about a particularly Jewish horror experience. And I can't wait for that. But whilst you're waiting, I would recommend reading Mary, An Awakening of Terror. Next up at number nine is The Clackety by Laura Senth. Now, I hope no one has any problems with me, including a middle grade book. No? Good. Because this is the year I was converted. You heard it happen last year when Courtney Summers brought me around to the merits of YA, how wrong I was. This year, Laura, Ali Malinenko and Dan Pablocki sat me down and taught me why middle grade fiction is some of the most creative and downright disturbing out there. If you want to hear that happen in real time, it's episode 103. Go and listen. The Clackety is pure bottle magic. It's the kind of book that I would have adored when I was a kid. And I still found it moving and genuinely thrilling. It's got quite a neat conceit. Basically, we're in Blight Harbour. I think it's the 13th most haunted town in America, according to this book. And we meet young Evie, our protagonist, and her aunt, a kind of adoptive aunt, Des, who is a kind of medium. She, she's a ghost wrangler. For reasons we won't go into, Evie ends up following Des into a kind of dark altar world that mirrors 
the real Bright Harbour. And there she finds a series of houses and she has to proceed through these houses. And in doing so, she meets monsters, ghosts, all kinds of strange denizens of this other world. But also in true, you know, YA middle grade teacherly fashion, she discovers things about herself and, and reconciles with some trauma. But that that teaching moment never feels OTT, it never feels imposed or or like it consumes the plot. It's just, it's happening there in the background. But yeah, that tidy structure of house by house by house makes it a really fast-paced, compelling book. You want to just get to the next house and see what's happening. But as tidy as it is, as neat as it is, it never feels... I don't know what's the word. It, it it never feels clinical. It never feels too orchestrated. And the whole thing is backed with the whimsy and the underlying cosmic terror of Neil Gaiman's best work in this field. It's very Coraline, if you like that kind of thing. And I, I guess you do. The ghosts that Evie meets are genuinely scary, including... A, a whole house full of them who wear pennies over their eyes, and that is very Gaiman-esque, other mother-type stuff. But also, she's followed by this spectre of a serial killer called John Jeffrey Pope. Why they always have three names, these people, I don't know. And I was kind of shocked that there's a serial killer in a middle-grade book, and it doesn't really pull away from the fact that he's a serial killer and what he's done. He's incredibly creepy, and the way he just pursues her at his own pace from house to house, it evokes something like the slow, patient terror of the film It Follows, which is a weird comparison to a middle-grade book. Um, The clackety itself, the spectre of the title, remains a slightly ephemeral figure, and I'll be really interested to find out more about him it in the follow-up books in this series laura if you're listening please write them and give them to me now um but yeah i was just blown away by this book i cannot recommend it enough for your kids you know your kids i don't i think it will enchant them and spook them just enough if you aren't sure read it yourself i promise you it won't be a chore it's the kind of book that i would have just devoured and called my favourite book when I was a kid and and that's why The Clackety is number nine on my very adult list of best books I've read this year. At number eight we have Malcolm Devlin's And Then I Woke Up. This is a very short sharp novella that I've written and talked about a lot this year and I'm still no closer to being able to adequately discuss it without giving spoilers um so tread carefully i may go a bit deeper here um yeah essentially it appears to be a story of a zombie uprising you know we've we've read it all before we've seen it all before urban environments awash with the ravening undead people being eaten in the streets survivors gunning them down or running for their lives This is different, though, very different, because what happens is that we then meet Spence, one of the supposed cured living at a rehabilitation facility. So we have the cured and we have the infected. And what becomes apparent is that those terms can mean very 
different things. And what Spence once thought he was seeing in the undead, maybe he wasn't. And maybe to be infected doesn't mean to be overwhelmed by a rabid virus that makes you eat your neighbours. Maybe it's an infection of misinformation or misperception. You know, it's... I, I won't say any more because it really would spoil it, but I think you get my gist, yeah? Um, I was astounded with the fact that Malcolm had found something new to do with the zombie. It's a truly alternative zombie story. I thought there was nothing left to say. After the war on terror embraced the zombie as a metaphor, in my opinion, a metaphor for the rights of nice white heroes to gun down hordes of dehumanised enemies. I won't get on my soapbox. Um, but I thought once the culture had done that back in the early parts of this century, I thought there was nothing left to say. But now the undead appears in a new war and it's the war on truth. And it's just so clever. And how, how Malcolm does so much in so few pages, I find it astounding. When I spoke to him, he was so very humble about this book. But I think he should be very proud of it because it is a truly moral horror story. And and the frights and the despair and the, the terror and, yeah, the horror all comes in the end from the realisation of what we are capable of doing if we believe a lie. It's the cleverest book I read all year. And then I woke up at number eight. Okay, number seven, and it's Reluctant Immortals by Gwendolyn Keist. So we've talked about fun horror, you know, the concept of, of bringing the fun back to the genre in relation to Mary. Well, when I saw the disco ball cover... <laughs> For Reluctant Immortals, or the sun-drenched hippie cover of the UK version, I thought, well, this looks fun. And then I read the synopsis, and I, I kind of thought, oh, it sounds like really fun, to the point where my expectations were a little bit crushed. Because at the surface, it sounds like frippery. It basically tells the story of the two forgotten women of gothic fiction. Lucy Westenra from Dracula and Bertha Mason from Jane Eyre. In Gwendolyn's version, they have become immortal and lived on into the 60s. It's not a present day setting. It's set either during or just after the summer of love. And I thought, OK, I, I've read a lot of books like this where we get a kind of assemblage of, of famous characters and put them together, you know, and then we get Dracula comes back. And then we get Rochester comes back as the, this kind of pair of patriarchal threats. I thought, right, it's going to be a mashup, quite quirky, quite, you know, jazzy and, and, and sunny and, and slightly wry and tongue-in-cheek. I was so wrong. That's a long caveat, I know, but bear with me. I was so wrong because whilst this book is fun and it's suffused with both kind of the the tone of the era and the fun and games of playing with pre-existing characters, it does so in a way that is wholly serious, at least underneath, because Gwendolyn manages to make this world in which 
all the patriarchy and all the the horrible misogynistic nastiness of the original gothic era in which these books were written is shown to never have changed either in the 60s or indeed through to the present day. It's this one long continuum of misogyny and petty microaggressions and and bad men getting away with doing things because they're superficially charming and have some power. And again, I know I always do this. I often make books sound more serious than they are. So I'm not going too far with this because at the same time, it is great fun. End of the day, you've got Dracula's like disembodied ashes basically talking to Lucy Westenra and flying away as a bat and all kind of things going on. It's it's a road movie. It's a homage to the music and the movies of the era. It's all of these things, but it's also deeply, deeply commentating on things that just don't change. I was just so impressed by the balancing of that tone. More and more, I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm coming to love is a writer who can take really distinct tones and vibes and atmospheres and put them together in one book and keep you guessing. Gwendolyn Kais clearly knows her gothic. She has done all her research and this, it reads and rings as authentic, but also wholly new. I was just reading it in surprise at how great it was compared to what I thought it was going to be. Loved it. I know I say I loved it. I loved all of these books, but yeah, this one was perhaps the most pleasant surprise of the year. Reluctant Immortals by Gwendolyn Keist. At six, it's The House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson. Now, this book exploded a misconception that I was holding. I thought I hated all second world set horror. And if you don't know what I mean, second world horror means horror taking place in an alternative invented universe. So Tolkien's Middle Earth or stuff like that. I always quite enjoyed portal horror. For example, I love King's The Dark Tower. But I always felt like if there wasn't at least some aspect of the real world in there, then the horror would always lose its impact and and, and its effect. And then I read House of Hunger and I realised I was wrong because I enjoyed this book immensely and it's entirely set in a different world. And the world itself is fascinating. It starts with this kind of Dickensian beginning in this slum city where we meet our protagonist, Marion Shaw, who, through various machinations, enrolls as a blood maid to the Countess Lisavert Battery. And she she gets on this train that is entirely fueled by blood. It's a kind of steampunk device. So we've gone from Dickens to steampunk. And this blood takes us north into this strange other place. And the train itself is deserving of its own novel. It's an incredible device and setting. And it kind of reminded me in a way of the train from Snowpiercer in which it kind of it works as a metaphor for the class system and when I spoke to Alexis we talk a lot about class in this novel I think I I call that episode Marxist bloodletting or something like that because she basically takes blood literal blood as a currency and a life force in this novel whereas it's often used as a metaphor here blood actually 
kind of greases the wheels of society and this train. Anyway, at the end of the journey, they reach the House of Hunger, which is this vast gothic edifice that feels a little bit like Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast, but it's also inspired by real medieval, you know, European castles, in particular by the castle belongs the real Elizabeth Bathory. I won't go into it all, listen to the episode if you want more, but Elizabeth Bathory is an intriguing figure from history. She's called the Bloody Countess and she was often rumoured to to murder virgins and bathe in their blood to keep herself young. And there's always an implicit sexual element in that kind of story. Any historical female figure that we want to demonise, we do so with sex. And this novel is full of sex. And the eroticism heightens the horror. And yeah, if you if you want more sex in your horror, and I've been clamouring for that for a while because I think it's such a, a major part of life that... If we cut it out entirely in this kind of weirdly prurient way, then we are denying the genre a great opportunity to tell new kinds of horrifying stories or to offer salves to the horror of the story. Yeah, just amusing. I return to now and again. But this is a very sexy book. That's all I'll say. It also has fantastic world building. I've mentioned that Dickensian slum, the train, the house itself, but it feels like there's way more just off the page that we haven't been shown yet. Alexis hints at these further developments, this these other places, other parts of the map that she could visit. And she mentioned that she may, and I really hope she does, because in such a condensed book set in largely in one house, it feels like a world entire. It's a book that I could never have expected to enjoy anywhere near as much as I did. And if you want a heady, lush, romantic, deeply sexy alternative gothic, then House of Hunger is the 2022 book for you. Okay, we're into the top five. And my voice is kind of holding out, I think, although I am starting to feel pretty terrible yeah, I may start to talk nonsense from this point onwards. Though I did make this list before I started feeling ill, so you can at least trust the rationality behind that. Anyway, at number five, it's a book I've talked about a lot this year because I enjoyed it so very much. It's All the White Spaces by Ali Wilkes. Now, Ali is a friend of the show, a friend of mine, though I'm yet to meet her in actual real meat space. Nonetheless, this book ranks here entirely on its own merits. It's a huge, thick tome of a thing that's set in the dying embers of the great golden age of exploration. And it follows a expedition to the South Pole shortly after the First World War, when all of these sailors are taking all kinds of trauma off into the wilderness with them, And what they find there in the cold white wastes is not friendly. And I'm not going to say what it is because, for a start, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Ali writes this kind of very earthy, very physical, practical book about men at sea achieving tasks and tying knots and things like that. But it's back with this 
ephemeral, abstract, cosmic sense of terror and threat that when we do see it often takes the form of of ghosts of recently lost loved ones, often in the war. But what the real horror is at play, I'm not sure we ever really know. Though Ali gives it a great name, a great chilling name. She calls it the Watchman, and this sense that something is watching over the ice and this place where man should not tread. I, th- I find that really satisfying and fascinating yeah, and, and chilling. The thing that makes this book stand out I suppose, from other books that do similar things, like Dan Simmons' The Terror, is how Ali bottles masculinity under a microscope, traps it in this boat and on the ice with nothing around, so it's just exposed for what it is. And it's basically an excoriation and a deconstruction of the myths that normally govern this type of fiction. You know, empire, patriarchy i keep ma- i keep using that word i know i must sound like some kind of ardent guardian reader which i am <laughs> but yeah she she's really taking on all of these myths that have upheld these dangerous narratives of war and colonialism and an excursion into places we shouldn't go and she turns it on itself and she does it by presenting a whole variety of different kinds of masculinity from really you know robust uber male characters to very toxically male characters and a whole spectrum of queer identities including the protagonist Jonathan Morgan who is a trans man consumed by the very narratives that would oppress him He is in love with the myth that his brothers told him before they went off to war and died. And his journey towards the cold heart of darkness is one of the scales falling from his eyes. God, that's me really mixing some, some textual metaphors. But yeah, it's revealed to him how these myths are founded on nothing and that when it comes down to it, what really matters is who you are. And what I loved and what I said last week, but I'm going to repeat, is that it It showcases in the end, this book, the idea that when the shit hits the fan and we're really in crisis, prejudice falls away and communal shared effort comes to the fore. And in a book that is incredibly grim, both in its human horror and in its supernatural horror, I find that a weirdly, well, not weirdly, I find it a heartening resolution to come to so yeah that's a lot of big words i suppose for a book which is about is about men going off to cold places and finding more than they can handle you know the terror the thing stories like that are at the back of all this but in my eyes ali wilkes does something new with it elevates it and it's just such an immersive story all the white spaces by Ali Wilkes. That's number five. It wouldn't be a talking scared top ten without the presence of Ellen Datlow, would it? And at number four this year, we've got Screams from the Dark, 29 Tales of Monsters and the Monstrous. It's a big, thick anthology full of different takes on what we mean by monster. And I love monsters. Because to me, they are the core of what makes life and literature interesting. And they can mean, well, the word can mean many things 
And the creatures themselves can represent many things. They are the ultimately malleable metaphor. For me, often, they represent the mystery of otherness and of wildness, both inside ourselves and outside in the big, wide, scary world. And Ellen's anthology pulls all of that together. There is every kind of monster and every meaning of the monstrous in this book. Now, I could talk... I could do a whole podcast just on my favourites from, from this anthology, but to be very brief, there are some absolute corkers in here. So there's Fran Wilde's The Midway. I, I love a carnival story. I think carnivals are one of the most delightful settings for any kind of fiction, but particularly horror. And this one marries that very earthy, kind of, you know, corporeal sense of the carnival with this this weirdly humble cosmic horror that you know sits in the water beneath the midway um i enjoyed it very much and i it's one of those that balances the the fear and the compassion we feel for the monsters around us indra pramit darcy's here comes your man is really quite scary it's set in bengal and it's a kind of twist on peckinpah's straw dogs it's a tale of misogyny and trauma and of being way out of your depth and as a man i found it perhaps the most unnerving read in the book i'd be interested in what a female reader makes of it because i think they may be similarly disconcerted but for very different reasons i think it's a very subtle piece of work and it it makes me want to read more of the author's stuff. Um, not so cerebral. You've got things like Flaming Teeth by Gary Kilworth, which is a great old school man-eating giant story. And Stephen Graham Jones goes full on Bigfoot or or is it a dogman or, or perhaps a werewolf? You just don't know. His story is called Children of the Night and it's, it's kind of laugh out loud. Um, A.C. Wise's Crick Crack Rattle Tap feels like an authentically scary urban legend. Three Mothers Mountain by Nathan Ballangrud is a gorgeously sorrowful modern fairy tale. But perhaps my favourite two stories in here are Glenn Hirschberg's Devil and John Langan's Blood Zuga. I think I've pronounced that correctly. Devil is set in Tasmania and it's all implication, half seen things, more often half heard things. And it's about, well, this guy in a bar telling a story to some tourists who've just been out in the bush and heard some weird stuff. And it's a kind of fake history of Tasmania involving monsters. Equally, John Langan in Bloodzuga adds to his increasingly ornate pseudo-history quasi-mythology of the Hudson Valley. If you've read The Fisherman, Bloodzuga is a is a beautiful counterpoint. I think there are probably links between the two, and I probably need to read them both again to trace those connections. But uh, yeah, it's a story of folklore and kind of horrific historical incident. Um, and what I love about those two stories, Devil and Bloodzuga, is the way that they do create an authentic fake history and then fill them with with horror and with heart. They they both feel like that kind of story that you are told by, you know, some strange guy in a bar or something your granddad once told you. These these weird anecdotes where the lines between myth, legend and real 
begin to blur and I, I, I love them. Those two books, particularly Langan's, are worth buying Screams from the Dark just on their own. But together, it's, it's a rich tapestry of what we can do with monsters these days. So that's number four, Screams from the Dark, 29 Tales of Monsters and the Monstrous, edited by Ellen Datlang. Okay, here we go into the really upper echelons. At number three, we have The Hollow Kind by Andy Davidson. Now, in a normal year, this would have been riding high as the number one because it's phenomenal. But this is not a normal year. Nonetheless, I loved this book. But only after getting through the first hundred pages. Because for a few nights of ploughing through this, I was so frustrated. It's the story of the Redfern family. And it takes place in numerous timelines on this estate owned by the Redferns that has fallen into disrepair as the generations have passed by. Um, In the present day, we meet Nellie Gardner, who's looking for a way to escape an abusive marriage. And she goes back to the old homestead when she finds out that her grandfather, August Redfern, has died and he's willed off the estate and the whole turpentine business that comes with it. So she she goes there with her 11-year-old son, Max. And we spend a lot of the book with her and a lot of the book back in the 1920s with August as a young man forging his dynasty and his destiny of making turpentine in these woods. It's very gothic. And the reason it drove me mad is for the first hundred pages, it feels almost claustrophobically lush. The descriptions of the landscape and the foliage and the house itself, it feels so oppressive, the amount of detail that Andy Davison throws at you. It's no surprise that we find out August Redfern is an inveterate map maker because orientating yourself seems to be a massive part of this book and the way it's written so yeah it was a bit of a kind of i don't want to say slog but i was having to really push through those first several chapters and then i don't know how it happens but this book just flowers into something truly brilliant nothing changes the language stays just as ornate just as lush and grand but it's like you suddenly learn the lingo. It's like kind of reading Dickens. It takes a while to get on board with the style and the cadence of the sentences. And then once you're in, you're in. And then you find out that there is something wrong with the estate. There is something lurking in the woods that has powers to both make men very rich and to take everything from them. There's a very kind of pet cemetery vibe going on. Um, And in some ways, it's just as cruel. I love the modern day stuff with Nelly and her son. I think it's really well observed and, and there's some really creepy details with this kind of guy who's trying to buy the estate who does some horrible things. Yeah, that's pretty icky. But for me, the real meat and the heart of the book is that stuff back in the 20s with August where you find out you know, what the menace in the woods is, what its role has been in this family's growth and decline. And also, there are whole sections devoted to this kind of internecine sort of mafia sort of mob sort of union breaking kind of conflict going on and there's one scene i think i mentioned this previously there is one scene 
of quite extreme prolonged violence that is just the most excited I've been reading fiction all year. There's a muscularity to it, a, a kind of visceral anger to the way that Andy Davidson writes that scene that kind of thrills you. And me and Andy had a big old chat about why violence is so appealing because it should be abhorrent. And may I don't know, maybe there's something wrong with me. Let's tell me what you think. If you've read the scene we're talking about where, where August Redfern gets even, what did you think of it? Yeah, I've kind of said a lot there without giving anything away, I hope, because I want everyone to go into this book blind. It's It's a gothic fable of the the most beautiful, dense, ornate kind. And it's a one-off for me. It's brilliant. The Hollow Kind by Andy Davidson. That's number three. In the number two spot, and I'm just so happy to say this, it's Burn the Plans by Tyler Jones. It's my only single author collection in the list this year. Um, And it's... It's just the most joyful collection of really, really nasty stories. (laughs) So, bit of context for those who didn't listen last week, and apologies if you didn't, I'm repeating myself, but I I got Tyler on the show because I really wanted to start, you know, having more independent authors come on Talking Scared. I feel like it's my way of kind of giving back after the community has been so kind to me. But I didn't know what to expect. I thought I may get a lot of ambitious work that maybe could have done with an edit or two. And then I got Tyler on as, you know, the first attempt at this. And I was just blown away because Burn the Plans reads like an author just at the height of his powers. Like there's not, there's not a story that misses really. And there is such a kind of spectrum of different horror on show, I will get to the thing that connects them all at the end of this this little summary because there is something for me that connects them that really elevates them. But yeah, the individual stories have a really varied feel. It it opens with a story called Corporation that feels like I don't know, like like Franz Kafka has taken one of his absurdist office, you know, bureaucratic nightmares and just turned it up to 11 to stupid. It's it's a kind of, yeah, a blood-soaked Kafka-esque tale of, of industry and, and and corporate cannibalism, I suppose. Um, there's a story called The Devil on the Stand, which couldn't be more different. That is darkly whimsical. It's a very old school kind of story with it it's got a great hook that's almost like a punchline it it could be a Roald Dahl story or even a Poe story it feels very old school in the way it has a central premise that it just pushes to its inevitable conclusion and it made me laugh sorry my voice is starting to go um the, the collection ends with a novella called Full Fathom 5 about a man who makes clairvoyant art with his own blood And that's a whole thesis on art and the dangers inherent in creativity. And it's the story that most showcases what Tyler learned from Chuck Palahniuk's workshop, I think. You can feel Palahniuk's nihilism and his thoughts on art kind of emerging from that tale, but in Tyler's own voice. Um, There are loads of other stories. There's a funny one called Boo 
There's a really kind of spooky one called, I think it's a sharp black line. Um, there's one called Red Hands, which is, is horrible, real kind of nasty body horror. But the one for me, and I'm not alone or original in saying this, but the story for me, which really shows the power that Tyler could have in this genre, is a story called Trigger, and it's a miniature American epic about two brothers and their very, very bad father. And if you like the fiction of William Gay or Cormac McCarthy, you know, that kind of southern hard fiction, rural noir, perhaps, or, you know, going back further, William Faulkner, or... Here's one. If you enjoyed Stephen King's novella, 1922, which again is that kind of hard scrabble rural noir, then you will love Trigger. And I believe that Tyler is writing a novel following those characters in a grander sense. But I said at the start that something connected these stories. And there are connections between them. There are certain characters who pop up in different places. But no, for me, what connects them is Tyler's mastery of voice. Because there is such variety on show. And so many different narrative styles, narrative voices. But they all feel real and authentic. And none of them feel like stunts. And it's interesting to me that the foreword to Burn the Plans was written by... Michael Marshall Smith, who, when I read his short stories for the show a few years back for the first time, I was again blown away by his mastery of voice. And also, by the way, that he, like Tyler, makes you feel like you are standing alone while someone tells you this story. They feel anecdotal. They feel conversational and very personal. And that despite how dark the tales may be, it's quite a heartwarming thing for me to feel like I'm sitting there with a direct line to someone who is telling me a story. That's what makes a tale really strike home and stick in my memory. And Tyler's got it in spades. I'm so happy that I had him on the show and I'm so happy that I love the book so much and I'm delighted to have been able to promote it and to say now, nearly 12 months later, that it is still at number two on my favourite books of the year. Burn the Plans by Tyler Jones. Read it now, because you need to get at the ground floor on this guy. Okay, and we come to the top spot. The number one, the crown of my reading for this year. And if you've listened to this show in recent weeks, you know what it's going to be. Because I actually said it was one of the greatest horror books I've ever read. And that is A Child Alone with Strangers by Philip Fracassi. And I don't know what to say about this book that I haven't already said. It manages to be at once an ode to the great horror bestsellers of, you know, King, Straub, even Dean Koontz and, you know, that kind of bombastic storytelling where you throw the kitchen sink at it, leave nothing out. It's that paired with this gritty, noir, crime-style thriller with a kind of police procedural attached to it, slammed together without either adulterating the other or or undermining the whole project. Yeah, it's... I've jumped in. Let, Let me tell you what it's about. Essentially, a little boy, Henry, is kidnapped by some very, very bad men and he's taken to a cabin out in the woods where he is he and they are not alone 
there is something out in the woods and something in the basement of the cabin and those two things want to be together and how a little boy Henry and his captors are in the way. Now that's a great pulpy setup, but where Philip goes from there is just, well, heartbreaking isn't even the word. This book was an empathy bomb for me. And I was just captivated from minute one, despite the fact that this book just goes all over the map. There are whole tenuous, meandering chapters that don't really matter to the plot. But of course, they do in the end matter to the plot because it's it's that sediment of detail and information that makes you care so much by the end. Makes you care about some of the bad people, makes you care a lot about Henry but for me and maybe I'm alone in this makes you care to an almost agonizing amount about the monsters inside and outside this cabin now I've I've kind of alluded in previous conversations including one with Philip to a certain scene in this story that nearly reduced me to tears and actually it did more than that it made me feel literally sick with empathy and with sorrow, it's beyond sadness, sorrow. And I, maybe that is the absolute epitome of horror, actually. Forget your body horror, and there's loads of that in this. There is lots of great bug horror, you know, but forget that for a second. Forget the violence, again, of which there is there is much. Forget the supernatural stuff, you know, Loads of that. There's a monster outside. There's a kid with kind of psychokinetic, clairvoyant, whatever, very Stephen Kingy kid abilities. You know, they're all great ingredients for horror. But it's that empathy, that ability to make you care and make you hurt. For for someone that isn't even the main character we're supposed to care about, that that for me is the the pinnacle of what this book does and what horror can do. Um when I said it's one of the greatest horror books I've ever read, I, I really meant it. I, reading it, I felt like I was reading King again when I was 13 and just overwhelmed by how much I cared about these characters. I thought I'd lost that as I got older. I thought that, you know, doing this show even and reading the book every week, reading so much, I guess a process, I, I thought I'd lost the ability to care this much about characters and, and people who don't actually exist. But turns out I was wrong. Phil Fragassi showed me I can still read like a child again. And yeah, I just want to say thank you to him if he hears this because that book rekindled my love for reading and rekindled my slightly weakening enthusiasm for doing this show because I was getting tired and I was getting a bit worn down and then, wow, read that, want to talk about it and boom, I was back on my talking scared hobby horse. So yeah, thanks to Philip. If you can, though, read A Child Alone with Strangers. It's utterly fantastic. And that's why it's my number one pick for the horror books of 2022. I didn't script any of that. I just talked, but I also coughed and spluttered and went an alarming shade of puce at one point. So... What you got there is a sutured together set of sentences and I, I hope they weren't too incoherent or meandering. Trust me, I I did the best I could. Um, 
But yeah, that's my list of the best books I read in 2022. There were loads more I could have mentioned, but in particular, there's a pair of books I read this year that came out previously, so they weren't eligible for inclusion, but you should still absolutely read them. One of them is The Lamplighters by Emma Stonex. It's her fictionalisation of the Flannan Isle lighthouse disappearances, a mystery that's endured for over a century and gets weirder with each detail. The other is The Library at Mount Char, which probably needs no introduction. I adored them both, and I don't want them to get forgotten about or lost in the mix just because they had the misfortune to not come out in 2022. You know how I said A Child Alone with Strangers is one of the best horror novels I ever read? Well, I'm currently reading The Deluge by Stephen Markley, and simply put, it's one of the best books I've ever read, ever, in any genre. Seriously, my fave books list of all time would now be It, The Stand, Lonesome Dove, The Grapes of Wrath, Wuthering Heights, and now The Deluge. It's straight in there with a bullet. It's a 900-page monster about the reality and the horror of our climate disaster. It's not horror in any marketing sense, but still, it's the single most frightening book I've ever read because it maps our trajectory to oblivion in a way that is so complex, accurate and, and true. I'm horrified by every page, but it's utterly wonderful and hope does persist. Yeah, the deluge, it's incomparable and Stephen will be on the show to kick off the new year on Talking Scared. I did think about whether or not I should invite him on, considering it's not a horror novel per se, but then I thought, hell, climate change is scary, and it's my damn show, so so go with me. That'll be the next episode out on January 10th, because I'm just taking a, a week off. After that, it's Grady Hendrix and then CJ Tudor and Normal Horror Service resumes. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are. Now, before I go, as promised, I want to say a huge thank you to every single listener. Don't turn off. Listen to this bit. You need to hear it. You lot are incredibly kind in devoting your time and often your praise to this show. Things have gone up and up and up in 2022. Like People now seem to treat this show as a kind of respectable authority on horror which baffles me because I'm still just the guy in my loft space making it every week I still feel the same as I did that first week with Paul Tremblay back in September 2020 but everyone else seems to have really held me aloft on their shoulders and I'm just really grateful and we finished the year on an all-time high with thousands and thousands of downloads per month it's great I'm in the process of working with qualified people to make Talking Scared even bigger and hopefully better in 2023. But it all comes back to you. There are many of you who have been on this roll with me since the start, back in the depths of lockdown when you were all no doubt parched for things to fill your time. That you still listen now when we can actually go outside and touch the grass and meet friends and do things with our lives. That's just so great and, and so flattering and, and in a year when we've had war and disaster and epochal storms and a whole economic crisis you've stuck with the show and stuck with horror 
and you really need to hear how much I appreciate you. So please, as ever, do get in touch if you like the show or have any thoughts. If you're new to Talking Scared or if you're forgetful, it's Talk Scared Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Now, I've just you know laid out all of my gratitude and it seems crass to, to ask for more, but I'm half delirious and I'm feasting on your goodwill. So so here goes. On top of listening, there are three ways to support the show. One, you can leave a review. They're the lifeblood of indie podcasting. And the more I get, the better my chance of growing this little beast. So please, if you've got nice things to say, do. And it will make a particular difference in the coming weeks. Two, Vote for the show in the This Is Horror 2021 awards. I know that the 2021 timing is weird. It's just because things have been very delayed at their end. But I'm nominated in the Non-Fiction Podcast Award. And you can vote for me by going to thisishorror.co.uk slash awards. Entries close on January 7th. And many thanks. And lastly, you can become a Talking Scared patron. For a few dollars... You get exclusive Patreon episodes and more. Plus, you help give me the time away from copywriting to actually make the show. If you want to you subscribe, just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. All patronage is much appreciated. Right, I'm going to bed now with a book and a hot water bottle. My, my wife bought me one with Ted's face on it for Christmas. <laughs> For those of you celebrating tomorrow, have a lovely New Year's Eve. And to quote Counting Crows like I'm back in my uni days, it's been a long December and there's reason to believe maybe next year will be better than the last. Until next time, Happy New Year. Be brave, be true, stand. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>